the cross. We're going to talk about the cross this morning. There was a young man. He was 13. He was in seventh grade, and he was struggling academically. He uh, was failing math, not doing well in his other subjects, but math, he was completely doing terrible. So his parents pulled him out of the public school in that city, and they took him to the Catholic school. The Catholic school in that area had a reputation of being strong academically, especially in mathematics. It was a place of good discipline. So they showed the boy around the first day. He didn't come from a religious background, and as they were walking around, he saw the crucifix with Jesus on it. His parents could tell that kind of scared him, but they didn't have time to explain it to him or anything. After the first grading period, he gets his report cards. He's still making C's and B's and everything else, but he made an A in math. In fact, as his parents began to uncover this, they noticed that on every test in mathematics, he had made a 100. So they went to the school to talk to the priest in charge and talk to the nun who was teaching him in his math and said, what in the world are y'all doing? He's doing so great. They were elated. They were a little proud, you know, proud and, and a little humbled. And, and they said, well, let's talk to the boy. What, what, what has happened? What has motivated you to do so well in math? And the boy started tearing up and he said, I saw what they did to that kid on the plus sign out there. The cross. We laugh, and, and listen, that's, that's a, uh, probably a story based in truth. What do you know about the cross this morning? Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 and Matthew 26 and 27. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to them and find it. If you don't have a Bible, the, the Scriptures will be on the screens. But I want, to see how the, I want you to see how the cross is something this morning it ought to change your life. It ought to change your life today. It ought to have a powerful impact on who you are this morning. But let's start with this. Because the cross, like that young boy, like many of us, we really don't understand the cross. So let's begin with this. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Here's a simple and very correct answer. Jesus went to, for your sins. Period. Jesus Christ went to the cross... Not for his sins. Jesus came to earth. And this is, you can't comprehend this. 100% man, 100% God, the Son of God, lived fully as God, fully as man. He never sinned. Jesus didn't have to have anything done for his sin. Jesus went to the cross for your sins and my sins. I'm going to give you several scriptures. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. The word sin there literally means just to miss the mark. You can miss the mark by an inch or by 10 miles. You you may think this morning, well, I'm a pretty good person. You may be, but you have missed the mark in your life with God. I'm going to bet if we talk to your husband and wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend, you've missed the mark with God in the last 12 hours. Some of you have missed it in the last 10 minutes. We all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What is that? That, That's physical death. That's a result of sin. But he's also talking about death of joy, death of purpose, and eternal death. But then we jump over to Hebrews, and God tells us the solution for sin. He says, in fact, the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness. Now, what, what was the exception? Nearly everything. Well, if a person was very poor and they couldn't afford to buy a sacrifice or an animal sacrifice, there was exceptions to that. But still, there had to be sacrifices made by the Old Testament law that for sin to be forgiven, something had to die. Blood had to be shed, and it was animals, goats, lambs, bulls, over and over and over and over but Romans 5, 8, one of the great verses in the Bible, listen to what it says. But God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Leave that verse on the board for just a second. You see, the, the shedding of an animal's blood was, was good but temporary. And the price for your sin was somebody's got to pay for it. Something's got to pay for it. And God says, I will come, Jesus will come, and he will be the sacrifice for your sins. But God demonstrates. That literally means God makes himself known. God manifests his love for you. The word love is that Greek word agape, that great word that means an unconditional love. That means God loves you despite anything you've done who you are, how good you are, how bad you are. God loves you. And God demonstrates, God manifests, He makes known His love for us that while we were still sinners, that word sinners is a different word from Romans 3.23. That means a habitual, heinous sinner. By the way, it's good for good sinners and bad sinners. But it's the way God's saying here, no matter how bad or rotten you are, God showed that He loved you by Jesus dying for you. Isn't that awesome? And you notice there's two things. The word died is a past tense. That happened. But the word demonstrates is a present tense. In other words, what that's saying is even this very morning, God is trying to let you know that he has demonstrated, that he is demonstrating his love for you as a sinner. He died for you. The Greek people of Jesus' day said this. They said a good person someone might die for. It would be a heroic and a noble deed, but you might die for someone who's good. Are honorable, but no one dies for a sinner. And that's exactly what the Bible says here is that God, Jesus, went to the cross to demonstrate God's love for you and me. You may remember back January of 2011, four years ago, in Arizona, a guy named Jake Loeffner, obviously out of his mind, showed up where an Arizona Congress lady was, Gabrielle Giffords with the intent on killing her and killing anybody else in, the, in the, the, the area, he severely wounded her, but six people did die, were killed. One of them was a, an elderly man. He was 75 years old. He'd just shown up to see the congress lady. But as the shooting started, he realized that his wife was fixing to be shot, and he jumped in front of his wife, pushing her behind him, and he took the bullet, and he died for his wife. Men, I don't know about you, I'd kind of like my wife to die for me maybe, but that's heroic, isn't it? But see, that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. Jesus took the bullet that, that, that was meant for you and me. What is the cross about? Number one, the cross is about you and I falling short of God's glory and standards. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, going to the cross and dying for your sins. That's awesome. 
Now let's look at this second thing. What did Jesus go through on the cross? This is very important. This is very important, and it's something a lot of people like to brush under the rug. Bill O'Reilly, you know who Bill O'Reilly is? He's pointing at you right there, of the O'Reilly factor. Bill O'Reilly has written a book, Killing Jesus. I haven't read it. Uh, I have skimmed it. I've read some reviews. I have a little bit of problem with it because I think Bill feels like his book's more accurate than the Bible. But his movie's coming out tonight, and I plan on, uh, uh, after coming to the choir uh, musical tonight, watching it, uh, taping it and watching it later. One thing O'Reilly said, though, uh, recently, and I think he was almost a little bit condescending toward Mel Gibson, is he said, well, this is not going to be as bloody and messy as the passion was. Well, a movie about Christ doesn't have to be bloody and messy to be good, but I want to tell you, the most realistic movie, and we're going to look at two clips in this sermon this morning, the most realistic clip, uh, movie, about Jesus' death ever to this point is the movie, The Passion. And yeah, we, we could avoid it. We could, we could sugarcoat it. Some churches are even removing the cross from their hymnals, and they don't want to talk. We just want to talk about the resurrection. Folks, you don't have a resurrection if you don't have a crucifixion. You don't have a Savior without the cross. So I want us to look at, oh, this will make me uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. It ought to motivate you to leave here differently when we see what Jesus went through on the cross. There was this process, kind of a pre-cross ritual. For Jesus, he got more than another person would have. And it started with the Jewish religious people. In Matthew 26, verse 67 and 68, 26, 67, and 68. This is Jesus before, the again, the Jewish leaders... And you've got to remember the temple had soldiers. It would be like our church having our own soldiers. Wouldn't that be cool? Probably not, but they did. It says they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. The tense of the verb there is they continued to hit Jesus. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? This is the Son of God. Last July, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune about a lady and a man who got in an argument in downtown Chicago outside of a courthouse. And the man, this is so creepy, he, he backhands the lady and he spits in her face. Isn't that horrible? You know where the joke was on him? She happened to be a judge there in Cook County. <laughs> and you know, and to spit into a lady's face and to backhand her as a way of insult, oh, what a unbelievable, this is the Son of God. Hey, many of, you, many of you claim this guy is your Savior and your Lord. They spit in his face and they hit him over and over again. And that's just the warm-up. Chapter 27, verse 26. Chapter 27, verse 26. This is after Pilate had basically made the, the, where the Romans said, we're going to crucify him. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over 
to be crucified. Now, it's interesting. The Bible gives very little, doesn't give any detail there, does it? In fact, it's very little plate. It just says he was flogged and handed over to be crucified. I think for a couple of reasons. One is it was so brutal. Number two, they knew what he was talking about. If I said, if I said hey, there was a baseball game yesterday or a basketball game, it doesn't, you know what that means. You, you understand that. They understood what a flogging is. You and I don't understand what a flogging was in Jesus' day. Again, the Jewish people... They actually, in the temple, their soldiers, their guards could flog you. Wouldn't that be powerful? If here at First Baptist we could, you know, okay, Norman, you're a little behind on your tithe. Come down here. We're going to have to flog you in front of everybody. You know what? Offerings go out of the roof the next three weeks, don't they? But they had a rule. You could only, you could only whip someone 40 times. So they would whip them 39 just to be sure they didn't cheat there and go to 41. The Romans did not have any such of a, a rule at all. So when they started beating on you, they beat on you till they got tired of beating on you. How it began is you would have had two Roman soldiers who were called lictors who would have come out and they would have tied Jesus. A lot of times the victim was naked or they were, you know, certainly stripped from the waist up and they would have tied both of his arms to a pole coming from the ground where he could not have moved or protected himself at all. They had whips, like we would think of a whip with a handle and uh, a cord coming out of it, but their whip would have several leather strips coming out of it. And in those strips, they tied pieces of bone that they'd sharpened, uh, lead and rocks to weight it down. And then they would begin to beat the victim. They would begin to beat the victim until they got tired of beating the victim. Dr. Truman Davis is a medical doctor who studied the flogging, and here's what he said uh, about this. He said that a person uh, could easily die when you rip the flesh off someone, muscles being exposed, possible internal organs being exposed. Again, victims did die when this was happening. I want to show you uh, about a minute of a clip from the movie The Passion, which shows us uh, a little bit of what this would have been like. <laughs> Another hand. Never view gun. Never view gun. gives you a little bit of a taste, doesn't it? It's pretty tough, isn't it? I just want you to remember that, that that's realistic. That's not fake. That's not hype. 
In fact, if anything, that's playing it down probably a little bit. The weird thing is, is this is just the warm-up now for Jesus because they move him after this to the uh, Roman soldiers' headquarters. In chapter 27, verse 27 through 31, it says, When the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, the praetorium was the general's headquarters, they gathered the whole company of soldiers. Now, that may have been 200 to 400 soldiers. There's a lot of soldiers around Jesus. Verse 28, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. A scarlet robe was a, a robe of a Roman soldier, a cavalryman. Uh, they were also mocking uh, scarlet as being kind of a royal color. They said, hey, you're the king, buddy. They put this robe on him. Verse 29, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. I've seen thorns from Israel three-fourths of an inch to an inch long. Can you imagine that being put down on your head? And you know that wasn't done with gentleness and love and respect. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews, they said to him. And I want to remind you, they spit on him took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. This is the Son of God. This is the one many of us here today proclaim. This is our Savior. This is the one we love. This is our Lord. I hope we'll let it sink from our head to our heart what Jesus went through. And this took place for you and for me, not for his sins, but for my sins. In, in, in verse 35, it reads very simply, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, again, they don't go into a lot of detail here for a couple of reasons. Crucifixion was so brutal, but people knew what it was. Again, if I said, well, we drove by the bank yesterday, you know what a bank is. They knew what a crucifixion was. Let's talk about the crucifixion. After they beat Jesus, he had to walk to the place carrying probably the crossbar, uh, kind of like carrying your own rifle and bullets they're going to shoot you with to the place of execution. When Cindy and I were in Israel several years ago, we walked this, what they believe is the route, the Via Della Rosa from where he was beaten by the soldiers to the place of the cross. And uh, I'm not in terrible shape. It was tough. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Jesus uh, after all he'd been through and then carrying that. I mean, it was not an easy, it was an uphill walk. The, the place was called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. It's kind of hard to see. Uh, I've seen pictures that were literally 100 years older. In 100 years, you could, you could tell some difference, but you can almost see some eyes there and maybe what was a mouth. It was called the place of the skull because it looked like uh, a skull. Now, in Jerusalem today, there are two places where they believe that could have been the crucifixion site. This is the one I, I lean toward because it does look like a skull. It was outside of the city gates in the ancient city, uh, and it was been in a very public place. But they, they took him there, and then they uh, would have begun the process of putting him on the cross. And they would have held him down and drove his hands into the cross. Now... They considered the hand and what we would say the wrist is the same thing. So the, the nail probably went right here, if you can see, on me. And 
that, that was a place that would, would be, could hold a body. They were experts at this. They wouldn't break a bone. And I, I remember reading in a commentary, a study book, where it said they, they hit the median nerve in the wrist. I talked to Dr. Mark Blackwelder about eight years ago, and I asked him, I said, Mark, what would it be like to get a nail into your median nerve? He said it would be unbelievably excruciating. So they nailed Jesus to this cross through his wrist, and then they probably, the way they did the feed, and they nails that they actually been found from this area, uh, the believe that were involved in crucifixion were five to seven inches long and about three-eighths inch thick, so that's a pretty good nail. They, they probably put his feet together and drove a single nail through his heels to tack him to the cross. Uh, that, that's, man, that's tough. Dr. David Taraska is a, a doctor who studied crucifixions, and he said that it's very possible when they, they lifted up the cross and they set it in the ground that, that one or both elbows would have dislocated and that one or both shoulders could have dislocated at the same time. So if you've ever had a dislocated shoulder or a joint, you can imagine the pain that Jesus Christ was going through. I want to show you just a brief clip again from the Passion when they're nailing Jesus to the cross. I think it illustrates the point very well. Folks, I, I love the cross we have in the baptistry. It's beautiful, and, and I love crosses on necklaces and other places. But, that, but that's not the real cross of the Bible. And again, you know, we can say, well, I don't want to see that. I don't need to see that. I, I think you do need to see that to understand what Jesus went through for you and for me. 1968, some archaeologists uncovered an ancient tomb and they found in there some bones with a young man, they determined, who had a, a seven-inch nail driven through both heels. 
Dr. Robert Stein, a pathologist, studied the skeletal remains of this person. They determined it was a first century man in his 20s that had died by crucifixion. And the doctor said, undoubtedly, this person died an excruciatingly painful death. It was slow torture is what it was. But see, for Jesus, it was even more, for, more than that because it involved the spiritual things. It, you can't imagine the humiliation of being crucified. You, you, you cannot tend to any bodily functions at all. You are, are open to the bugs, the gnats, the birds, and the people coming by. Tremendous humiliation. Jesus, it says, was crucified in such a public spot that, that on the cross they put king of the Jews in three languages, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. That's how public a place it was. We're told in Matthew 27, 45, it says from the sixth to the ninth hour. Now, for them, that was from noon till three. Darkness came over all the land. That was what that was. That was symbolizing the judgment of God on the sins of the world, the sins of the world being put on Jesus Christ. And in, in chapter 27, verse 46, the famous words of Jesus that, he, that we have in Aramaic, it says, about the ninth hour, about three, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sambachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is unimaginable that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at the point when, when the sins of the world, your sins, my sins are cast on Jesus, the judgment is followed on Jesus, the Father looks away from the Son. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher, says, God is separated from God at this moment. Un, it's unimaginable. And it happened for you and for me. It happened for you and for me. So I want to ask you this morning, what will you do with this Jesus? Not, not some pretty, dainty, sissy Jesus, but what will you do with the Jesus Christ of reality, the Jesus Christ that went to the cross and who died for you? What will you do with him? I think there's three choices today. One is we can thumb our nose at him. We can just say, you know, I don't care about that. You know, whatever. I, you know, who needs that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, listen to what it says. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. About seven or eight years ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine in New York City. He is a Jewish man. He's deceased now, but he was a psychiatrist and a devout Jew. And I was trying to explain to him about Jesus and about giving his life to Jesus. And here was what he said about the cross. He said, that's dumb. God becoming man and dying on a cross for our sins, that is dumb. I think that's what he was talking about right there. Here's probably a second and more, honestly, a more Rustin response is that we just, doesn't affect us at all. We just remain the same. I mean, by the way, you've, a lot of you have seen the passion. You've heard about the cross. You've got the answers. You have some kind of a relationship with God. So why should anything be different? That's going to be the most common response in the Bible Belt. It just doesn't affect us. We've been there. We've done that. But there's one last response which truly is the right response. I want to ask you this. Will you bow your life to this Jesus today? 
I promise you what we've looked at is scratching the surface of God's love for you and me. In first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says, And he died for all. He died for you. That those who live should no longer live for who? Themselves. But for Christ who died for them and was raised again. What, what else could Jesus do to get your attention? Ten years ago, it was 2005... A Metrolink train, a train that runs in the city in, in Los Angeles, crashed. Eleven people died. Many, many people were hurt. A lot of tragic stories, obviously, from that. One story grabbed my attention. I don't think I'll ever forget it. They found the body of a, of, of a dead man. And they noticed right above where he had died were written these words. I love my kids and I love my wife, Leslie. By the way, it was written in his own blood. As he lay dying, he wrote that. Romans 5, 8 says that in his own blood... Jesus Christ wrote, I love you. Will it affect you today? Let's pray. This morning, if you're a Christian, I pray that this does impact you. I pray right now that this will make a a decision a move in your heart. And if you're not a Christian, I want you, if you're ready to do this, to pray with me where you are and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from my sins. I believe you're God's son and that you died for me and that you arose for me. Jesus, come into my heart this morning. And today I surrender my life to you. Let me have your attention just for a minute. We're going to stand in a moment. I want to ask you to respond. I want to ask you to respond this morning to this Jesus. Maybe you just prayed and asked Christ in your heart. Or maybe you're ready to do that. When we stand this morning, would you come today? Would you come today and give your life to this Jesus? Maybe you're ready to join our church. We would love for you to. What kind of church are we? We're a church that's going to love you and lift up the crucified Christ. That's who we are. Come join us this morning. Maybe you're here today as a Christian and maybe you need to leave your seat and come get on your knees or your face before God and say, thank you, God, for what you've done for me. And forgive me for my half-hearted, half-efforts to live for you. Christian, let's, let's sell ourselves back out to God this morning. Let's stand. And as we sing, you come today. We'll be waiting on you. You come.